Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. I'm excited for you to hear this episode as Preet Banerjee is a powerhouse. I've been following Preet for years and I'm a big fan of his work. It was a real pleasure to speak with Preet. On today's show, we talk about behavioral finance, race cars, financing crap, how dogs are taking control of our cities, and how Money Gaps is reimagining financial advice. Enjoy. Welcome back to the most hated F word. Today, I am extremely pleased to have somebody who I've been following in the personal finance world for a number of years, Preet Banerjee. And before we get into the conversation today, I'm going to read Preet's bio that I have pieced together from numerous sources, but I think it gives a good insight on who Preet is. So originally trained as a neuroscientist and following a brief stint as an aspiring race car driver, Preet now excels within the world of finance. Preet was known for his time as a panelist on CBC's The National and a contributor to The Morning Show on Global. Preet inspires others to become financially empowered through his world-class expertise and unique ability to take the complexity out of money manners. He speaks about why we are hardwired to make bad decisions about money and what we can do about it. Now, Preet is a consultant to the wealth management industry, specializing in commercial applications of behavioral finance. He's also the founder of a fintech company called Money Gaps, which is an online tool for financial advisors who believe all Canadians deserve financial planning. Preet is also a financial educator as he contributes to the Globe and Mail, his own YouTube channel, and his podcast called Mostly Money, as well as a professional keynote speaker. I believe, Preet, you're in the final year of your doctoral research into quantifying the value of financial advice across all delivery channels. And last but not least, Preet won the inaugural Ultimate W Network Expert Challenge, which led him to be named the host of the Million Dollar Show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Preet, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. So I want to start in your bio. You talk about being an aspiring race car driver. And anyone who's listened to your podcast knows that you've talked about it. I like on that last one, your guest, you guys even looked at your simulator, I think, in your own place or yeah, somewhere. That's right, with uh, Tamea, who's that uh, human trafficking survivor. And now she's turned into a financial crimes investigator and consultant. Yeah, that was a fascinating episode. I really enjoyed that one. Thanks. So can you tell us about your love for cars and specifically how you fit that into your spending plan? As a finance guy, I don't think fast cars are inexpensive. So talk about your love for cars and how that works in your spending plan. Sure. My my love of cars is kind of um, something I was raised with. So my dad was always a fan of sports cars. I would say to the typical level. So, you know, a bit of a gearhead, but not, you know, crazily a, a gearhead. And so he always, you know, I think spent a little bit on on a slightly sportier car than average, you know, sporty BMWs and Mercedes and stuff like that. And so growing up, I kind of sort of got that bug a little bit from him. But it wasn't until I was in undergrad and a friend of mine, he said, you know, why don't you come with me, bring your car, and we're going to do some autocrossing. I was like, what 
what the heck is autocross? <laughs> and essentially, it's where you take your car and you race against the clock in a parking lot in a pylon delineated course. So you're not racing door handle to door handle with another person. It's not street racing. It's sanctioned and it's in a closed off area with timing and all this stuff. And after my first event, I was completely hooked. Now, this was first year university, I think. And so during this entire time, I started to dive deeper into the world of racing. So not just cars, but specifically auto racing. And it turned out that one of the world's most famous auto racing schools was located not too far from Toronto, where I live. And it was about an hour, hour outside of the city at a racetrack called Mosport, which is now known as Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. And so there was a school there. And apparently you could go and try to become a professional race car driver by going to school for it. And so I thought, well, that's what I want to do. So I was studying neuroscience at the time. And, you know, I was in my second, third year and I thought, this is interesting, but I don't know if I want to spend my life focused on this. I really don't know what I want to do. I don't know who I am yet. I don't know what the next step is. So I thought, well, now is probably the last chance I'll ever have of pursuing a career in auto racing. So I thought, you know what, as soon as I graduate with my undergraduate degree, I'm going to enroll in this auto racing school, which was so pleasing to my parents <laughs> when, I, when I told them that. And so, so I went and I trained at this school for a year and uh, was in the auto racing industry for a couple of years. And so I think I am qualified to call myself a car guy. Yeah. So I like fast cars. Well, I have one motorcycle left. I have one motorcycle stolen a couple of years ago. I oh. had a, a really nice sport bike, a, a Ducati. So for your motorcycle listeners out there, they'll know that it's like one of the sporter Italian brands. And that got stolen. It's a very desirable bike. But I don't own a car. And the one motorcycle I have left, I haven't ridden in a couple of years. So I effectively don't really have a vehicle. And at the same time, I still get to experience a lot of fast cars. So the way I spend money, and I think this is a great segue into talking about money and psychology, and a lot of people will tell you that it makes a lot of sense to spend money on experiences as opposed to accumulating stuff. And particularly when it comes to cars, they're, for the most part, and 99% of the time, they are depreciating assets. There are some mm -hmm. collector cars that go up in value after you buy them, but they're like millions of dollars to start with. So for the most part, cars are a depreciating asset. And so from a financial perspective, you know, you really want to focus as much as you can on the utilitarian benefits of a car if it is sort of a necessary expense for a lot of people, which it is. Mm -hmm. And the utilitarian benefits of a car is, you know, you don't get wet when it rains. So it's got a roof and it gets you from A to B reliably, doesn't consume a lot of fuel. And that's pretty much it. And everything over and above that is kind of a luxury if it has... 200 horsepower, 300 horsepower feels great. And it's awesome. You don't need it. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is completely unscientific. But I think if you limited cars to like 80 horsepower, that's more than enough to cover 90% of the use cases of how people use cars. And if you look at rush hour, back when I used to commute, which is now over 10 years ago, it was just a sea of cars where you have one person in three empty seats, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just so strange that the predominant use case of cars has somehow also led to this horsepower war and people put so much stock into zero to 60 times. <laughs> no one could tell the difference I, between zero to 60 in three seconds versus 3.3 seconds. People can't, but for whatever reason, they were so fixated on that. Yeah. And it's completely useless for most people on how they use a car. So if I did have a car, I tended to buy a car that my car guy friends would say, why are you driving that? 
And it was for me, you know, the speed limit is the same for every single yeah. car on the road. <laughs> but at the same time, the money that I save in being much more utilitarian focused with a commuter car, I take some of that savings and I spend it very frivolously on experiences. So it's going to sound crazy to some people, but, you know, on my 39th birthday, I went to Belgium because I had to be in Europe anyways. And I did a detour to Belgium and I probably spent, I think it was maybe four or 5,000 euros. So at the time, six or $7,000 for one day of driving a race car on one of the most famous racetracks in the world. And I'm perfectly happy with that because if I add up all the spending I've ever committed towards mm -hmm. vehicles, it's still less than the average because there's so many people who spend so much on cars that it switches from the utilitarian focus to the more emotional benefits, status, and, and what have you. So, I, you know, in, in some cases, this is kind of odd to a lot of people, but for me, it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Well, have you read the book Happy Money by Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton? No, I haven't read that one. Uh, there are two psychologists, Elizabeth Dunn's Canadian, and they talk about five ways to spend money to be happy money, to make happy money. And one of them is to make it a treat. And she specifically does research on car guys and, and mm. gals. And exactly what you said that she's like, you know, the value or the output you get from a car is just taking you point A to point B. But some people really love cars. And she talked about this car swap or some subscription in New York, where you get this fancy car for two weeks or whatever. And it was interesting how she talked about also buying experiences was one of the other ones. And she said like an experience is three, or when you buy something, there's three stages. There's like the pre-contemplate, like thinking about it and the, the joy you get from doing that actually purchasing it and then reminiscing and telling stories about it. And it speaks to what exactly what you're saying is that, yeah, it might sound crazy to people. Like I spent $6,000 on a car in Europe, but I think I saw the re report from 2018 AMA put out that the average Canadian is spending with depreciation insurance registration, like seven or $8,000 a year on a car that sits like 95% idle on the side of the road. Yeah, it sounds like a book that I would enjoy reading because there's a couple of things there that resonate with me. And that is that that concept of hedonic adaptation. Mm. And that's basically the newness wears off, mm -hmm. right, with anything that you buy. And there is the anticipation of a reward. And that tends to have more psychological weight in our minds than the actual receipt mm -hmm. of some type of reward. So I think some evolutionary biologists say that this is kind of part of the hard wiring, which is you're kind of optimistic that, you know, if you venture out of your safe cave into that dangerous world, it'll be worth it because you're going to find some kind of food source, whether it be scavenging for, you know, fruits and vegetables or whatever, or something else. If you didn't have that, you'd stay in and die. So evolutionarily, you know, it'd be bad <laughs> to just yeah. sort of stay in there and just assume the worst. So that anticipation, you know, can really be a big feeling. So when you think about something that you want to buy and you start researching it, you, get, you start to fall down to this this sort of rabbit hole, you, you keep looking at more articles and reviews and you're like, man, I really need this. Mm -hmm. And then you get it. And then after, you know, 10 uses, it doesn't register in your mind anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just something that you have now. This is a great example. So I hosted a show, Million Dollar Neighborhood, which mm -hmm. you referenced in the bio on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And that entire show was essentially a giant personal financial boot camp. Mm -hmm. And so there was a hundred families involved and the goal was to increase their collective net worth by a million dollars in 10 weeks. So every week, the 100 families in the program, they had this $100,000 goal where we had to increase their net worth. And so the first week was one of the easier ones where the challenge was, you know, sell all your junk. 
And what was cool about it was that we partnered them up with a neighbor and the neighbor would go into their basement and just sort of say, well, this is what you're going to sell. And and then it turned into this giant yard sale. So it was like a huge field and it was just a huge amount of, it's going to sound bad, junk. Mm-hmm. But one person's junk is another person's treasure, right? Mm-hmm. And so they ended up selling $74,000 worth of stuff that was just <laughs> sitting gathering dust in their collective basements. Because that's what happens when you accumulate stuff. So the anticipation of wanting these things is massive. Mm-hmm. You get it. And then very quickly, you don't care as much about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's why we accumulate a lot of stuff. And I've got another personal rule, and that is whenever I move, if there's something that I brought from the last move that hasn't come out of the box or has gained dust mm-hmm. or I haven't used it, and I'm going to move it to the next place, I don't because I clearly don't need it. <laughs> yeah. And it's so interesting that so much of us are like, oh, but I might need that third salad spinner or whatever, even though it hasn't come out of the, <laughs> it hasn't come out of the box or... Me and my wife were looking through our uh, pantry and we had like three waffle makers. We're like, we make waffles four times a year. Right. But that one day you can mass produce them. Uh, yeah, I know. And <laughs> life is going to be terrible if I can't on that one day. <laughs> and I think with cars, like behavioral finance, talk about the anchoring effect. And I think it's just so strong that we anchor that I need this new vehicle. I need warranty. Oh, what happens if something goes wrong with my car? If I got to get warranty? But we just don't sit back. And I like how you just broke down that simple idea of what do you need this car for to keep you out of the rain, get you to point A to B and all the other things your words were, which I liked was luxury. So when you talk to people, what is your advice for cars, like specifically shopping for cars? If someone's sitting here listening and they have two 2020 vehicles sitting in their driveway for the last seven months, barely being moved, maybe this is a time like, you know, sometimes we need something to trigger us to actually change like the boot camp mm-hmm. for 10 weeks. Yeah. You know, when you factor in how much the cost of housing takes out of our budget, there's not a lot of wiggle room left. And so the next sort of major category is what we spend on vehicles. And so people will commit themselves to these very long amortization car loans with relatively high monthly payments. And what it does is it leaves them with virtually no buffer at the end of the month. So between housing and cars and all the regular necessary expenses like food and and what have you, it doesn't leave you with a lot to live your life. And so I've kind of always looked at it from a commitment perspective. And if I'm looking at, for example, something like a car and a salesperson says to me, yeah, you can get this beautiful, fast, luxurious car And, you know, the monthly payment is 600 bucks a month for the next seven years. I'm thinking, man, that means that's seven more years of X amount of work that I have to now Mm. do if I want that car. And so I see it as kind of a not only taking my money, but taking my future time away from me. And so the less commitments I have, if I can get away with it, it means the more meaningful I can think about how I design my life and how I spend my time, because it's not, you know, 90% of my day is just paying for my commitments that, you know, I anticipated that I, that anticipation of getting these things was so great. It caused me to make those commitments after I got them. It doesn't feel as great. And now you sort of like resent, oh, I have to work all this, mm-hmm. all these hours in order to pay for this thing that I don't like as much as I used to. So I kind of look at it as, do I want the commitment of that monthly payment for the next X number of years? And how much of my time does that take away from my sort of freedom to choose how I spend my time? And most of the time, I find that it's just not a great trade-off. But I don't think most people kind of look at it that way. 
I think they just say, well, I've got $1,000 left over per month mm-hmm. after the mortgage and paying for food. And if the car that I need is 300, but the car that's right beside it looks really cool is 600 a month, I can make that work in, in terms of my monthly cash flows. So I think one of the culprits is we have seen the slow transformation to a subscription economy mm-hmm. where everything is priced per month. And we tend to think in terms of monthly payments and we're very present biased. And I think one of your previous guests, I think it was a prof at University of Alberta was talking about this mm-hmm. hyperbolic discounting. Yeah. And, you know, we're just hardwired to think in the short term. So can we make mm-hmm. it work now is kind of like as far as we tend to naturally see. But if you really want to make good money decisions, all financial decisions are, in effect, trade-offs, something for today for something tomorrow. But we discount the future so much that we don't see it as clearly as the numbers make it. Right. Yeah. Before we were recording, I talked about this Dr. Brad Klontz, and he does a lot to fill that gap of that empathy gap of we don't know what our, we can't empathize with our future selves. He does a lot of like deep imagery work. And yeah. I was listening to one of your older TED talk about debt. And I actually grabbed a quote, what I really liked. And you said, accessing your future income for a fee is like taking on debt. Mm-hmm. And, and I really felt that was like, it kind of like sat with me. I'm like, that's kind of like a bit of you didn't make people go into deep meditation and get them to think about that. But just that statement resonated with me. I'm like, yeah, that's a good, simple way to just think about your future self is if I take a debt for a car, for example, I'm actually accessing that future income for a fee. So I thought, have you felt using statements like that have helped people kind of empathize more with that future self that they're borrowing money from? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, over time, as I've sort of expressed that idea, that concept, you kind of shape it a little bit as you go along. And I think what really resonates with people is when you when you present it as, you know, when you're borrowing money, you're effectively negotiating a pay cut with your future self. Mm-hmm. Because if you wanted to buy a $30,000 car, it's going to cost you, you know, $37,000 after interest. If you had had the $30,000 in cash, then it would cost you, you know, the 30000 And so, yeah, that interest is kind of like a fee on accessing your future income because you're making a commitment to future obligations that come out of your future income to maintain that loan. And so when people look at it that way, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Then the second part of it is, okay, if you're going to do that, because debt is one of those things that you need to use in life, mm-hmm. you have to use it responsibly. And when you use it irresponsibly, that's when people get into trouble. So borrowing money to buy a home, for the most part, as long as people don't stretch themselves to get into a home, makes sense because the house is an appreciating asset. So Mm -hmm. while you're negotiating a discount with your future self in terms of your income, like a pay cut, you're using that money to buy something that will also go up to more than cover off that trade-off. So that makes sense. But when it comes Mm -hmm. to things like a depreciating asset, like a car, then you have to think about, okay, so you can't go crazy here. You can't just borrow as much as you're allowed to borrow to buy a car just because you can qualify at those ratios. You really need to think about, do I want to do that? Because you're not going to get that much out of that car. You're going to get the utilitarian benefits, but Mm -hmm. there's no investment value. It's not going to go up in value over time and you're going to have to replace it. Mm -hmm. But then where it gets really bad is if you take a look at you know, people spending money going to fancy restaurants and you get a bill for like 100, 150 bucks after drinks and then you put on your credit card and you can't pay that credit card bill off at the end of the month. 
now you are financing one of the quickest depreciating assets you'll ever get, which is food, because you know in 24 <laughs> hours it's going to be out to sea. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's literally crap at that point; it has yeah. no value whatsoever to anyone. So it's kind of like that spectrum of yes, there are more productive uses of debt, and there's just some downright awful uses of debt. <laughs> and so how fast that depreciation is is a factor in that calculation. <laughs> I've never heard that perspective, but that's a good one. Is <laughs> how many credit cards? are financing food bills that are a lot these are, days. Yeah, I know. And they're crap as you say now. <laughs> um, this kind of transitions me into, so on this podcast, I've got a big interest in stories and money stories that we're telling ourselves. And like, I've started to look into the power of stories uh, in the last couple of years. And we can see when we kind of step back out of the story that we're telling ourselves, that stories are kind of the baseline on how we see ourselves, how we see the world, to create our worldview on, on how we see and interpret the world. And like we see it from a cultural context all the time to preserve cultures, we need to document, tell stories, pass on cultural values through the power of story. But when it comes to money, a lot of times if I, people want to go talk to their parents about money or stresses about money. It's just a, a we, we know it's a taboo subject. People don't talk about it. However, I feel like we avoid the story that's always going on in our head. And just in that context with debt, that could be that, you know, our parents always said it takes money to make money or you need to borrow money to get these things or debt is so bad. But these stories imprint and unconsciously are just going in the back of our heads. So they're influencing us even if we know it or not. So my question for you, if, if you're willing on this end is, can you kind of talk about what as much as you want to about your money story and the evolution of it? And then also the power of understanding our stories when we're trying to create like a thriving life, a life where we can take advantage of our time, as you've kind of talked about earlier, of making those decisions that will give us more time. Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one story that I think was, was sort of formative for me. I was never taught anything about money growing up. When I was in university, I remember going to the Toronto Indy. I think at the time it was called the Molson Indy. And there was a booth where if you signed up for a credit card, you could get a credit card that had famous Formula One driver on, on the card, Jacques Villeneuve, Canadian Formula One driver. I was a huge Jacques Villeneuve fan. So I was like, oh, I want that because it just looks cool. And that was my first credit card. No one told me how to manage credit. And so after a couple of years, I built up, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of debt on that credit card. And at some point I sat down and I saw how much I was paying in interest every month. And I realized, man, if I just had that amount that I'm paying in interest per month and extrapolate that over to a year, I could have like the best vacation I've ever had <laughs> every single year in perpetuity. So that was kind of a turning point for me was getting to the point of not quite no return, but to a pretty low point. And I want to dovetail that into some of the research that I've done. One of the pilot studies I put out as I was doing my research was asking people about the financial security of the household that they grew up in. And my hypothesis was from talking to colleagues, having been a financial advisor in the past before, it always seemed to me that people who had some serious negative financial event in their life or in the household that they grew up in always did really well managing money later on in life. And so I wanted to see if there was that relationship. So I asked people who were taking this survey, it was kind of like a last minute additional question, you know, on a scale of one to five, what was the level of financial security in your household? And there was indeed a negative correlation. The more financially insecure 
a household was that someone grew up in, the better the financial choices were that that person made when they were older because they never wanted to replicate the feeling mm -hmm. that they experienced. And I remember there was one advisor who was telling me a story and this really sort of encapsulates this. And it might have been their own story. I forget. It was so long ago. But he said that he'll never forget when his family, uh, he was a young boy at the time, when his family got evicted from their home and all they had was a couch that they all sat on, you know, on the day of the eviction that was put at the end of the, the driveway on, on the street. And he remembers seeing his friends drive by, you know, in the backseat of cars and looking at them as his family sat in this couch, watching them look at them mm. as they'd just been evicted. And of course, everything that that person had done ever since that point in time was all about making sure that that never happened again. So he was a tremendous saver, saved a huge percent of their of their income, was very conservative, a lot of things that they did. And so that really molded the way that they looked at money. And so, you know, when you think about it, these are lessons that are not learned by explaining to someone the power of compounded interest. This is not the lessons explaining what asset allocation is to someone. These are lessons that people learn because of this deep emotional effect that they had because of a very negative situation. And that drives a lot of behaviors. When you think about, you know, the rush in January and February may not be the same this year because of COVID, but people sign up for gym memberships, right? Mm. In droves. And it's usually because, you know, in December, you kind of a little bit lax with your eating habits and maybe your fitness regimen and you gain a few pounds on the scale and like, oh, this is more than usual. I need to do something about it. And so there's always that point where mm -hmm. it drives action. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's a severe negative event that really shapes the mm -hmm. way that they think about money. And if you don't have that and you don't have the education, you kind of just float by mm -hmm. learning by trial and error, which is a horrible way to learn about money. And which is kind of how I was going because again, no one taught me about managing credit. I learned the hard way, but it wasn't until I got to that negative event that I did something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. Those like financial flashpoints or those financial events that trigger you to think differently. I'm curious, do you know, in, in the research, I've heard similar situations where these flashpoints happen and it then people do not want to live a certain way. But I've seen it sometimes where they call it financial vigilance, where it's just like obsessive over saving because like having no money reminded them of childhood, which reminded them of being insecure, or not enough. And sometimes these unmet needs or what's driving that obsessive saving or that ability just to not to live because you want to save because you just want to avoid that pain from a child. Did you come across any of that? Yeah, we didn't get that deep. You know, our, yeah. it was just one question that right. we okay, added yeah. on the survey. Yeah. So, and, it, and it was a survey, so there was yeah. nothing qualitative about those answers. It was yeah. uh, it was just sort of a singular rating. So right. unfortunately, we don't have, I don't have anything to share on that yeah. other than but, anecdotes. But it's, it's amazing though, hey, how like those events can just drive so many decisions going forward. And I find if we don't take the time to understand those, our own money stories, we, like you mentioned, we just can float through or we can go obsessive through thinking this is the way, this is the way I'm saving, I'm saving, I'm saving, I'm saving. And then we're Scrooge, although he did change in the end. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, uh, you, you don't need to have a significant event to, to shape your money personality. It can certainly, but not everyone has those significant events. And there's certainly cases where, you know, people just are okay talking about money, asking questions about their money. They're either naturally inquisitive or they just take time to really sit down and think about it. And another question that we did ask was about, because this was kind of a hypothesis, and that was the level of household communication about money. Mm. 
when people were growing up. And so we could measure, was the communication accurate? Like, was it, you know, all right stuff that was being told? Right. Or Because communication could mean, you know, your parents are always saying, well, you should feel free to, you know, carry a balance on your credit cards. Mm-hmm. That would count as communication. It would be right. the wrong message, but it would yeah. be communication, right? But what we did find was there was a positive correlation between financial communication in the household that someone grew up with and their sort of financial well-being later on. And I think this, you know, this might speak a little bit to, and again, I think you referenced this with the previous guest, you know, Kahneman's um, thinking fast and slow Mm -hmm. and the system one, system two thinking. We naturally default to, you know, system one that's kind of always, always on. And then you have to sort of consciously engage system two or something has to sort of spur that system two being engaged. And so maybe it's just that, you know, when you think more deeply about some of your financial decisions and you engage system two and you think more critically about things, you make better decisions. And I think, you know, having a household that says, yeah, it's okay to talk about money encourages you to ask questions and think Mm -hmm. more deeply as opposed to developing kind of like these rules of thumb, these heuristics about Mm -hmm. uh, managing money based on what you see. Because another thing that humans do is we, we imprint. And again, evolutionary biologists would suggest that, you know, the monkey see monkey do phenomenon of kids, like if you swear, they swear right away. This is the exact same way that you said. They do that because they mimic your behaviors because you're, you know, as you're raising them, you're teaching them to, you know, these are the things that you need to do to survive, right? Evolutionarily speaking. And so when they see, you know, you paying with things with plastic and not really talking about the cost of things, all they see is that, oh, if you want something, you just pull Mm -hmm. out a plastic card and pay for it. Now, that's where the the communication stops, which is just the the sort of the visual, what they see. That's not a lot of communication, right? Mm -hmm. And so they'll just follow that behavior and say, yeah, I just pull out a card whenever I want something. Mm -hmm. So if you can go on and you start communicating about, you know, what does it take to be able to use this card and how much does it cost and how many hours did, you know, mommy or daddy have to work in order to pay for that? Even you have then that kind of communication, it's going to get people thinking and being comfortable with thinking about money. But I know, and you probably have come across people who were raised in households where talking about money is as taboo as talking about yeah. sex, right? Yeah, it's one of those things. And I think there's just so much pride that goes into like the two figures running the house that they can't talk about like, oh, I'm stressed about money. Like It's always put on a flat face, yeah. or not flat face, but a, a stern or a strong face, strong yeah. face. But it's so funny. You talk about the kids and watching. I have two young kids and we would go to stores and my, my son's just like, yeah, just just use your card and just tap it. <laughs> yeah. And he's four. And during the lockdown, it was his birthday. And we would still want to get him a present. And I like showed him like he wanted to get these Batman little figurines. I showed him online on Amazon. And after that, he's just like, Dad, just go online and do that again, and you can get a toy. And, and like, so I found myself even like, Yeah, it's time to communicate with him because his little immature brain is just making up these conclusions. If I don't tell him that we can't do this all the time, or when dad goes to work, I'm making this money. So it's, yeah, I'm I remember, not- I remember, you know, looking at my parents, like, I want to be like my parents when I was mm-hmm. you know, a young kid. And I convinced them to let me bring a briefcase to school one day when <laughs> I was in like grade three or four or something like that. Looks stupid. I'm sure all the teachers had a laugh, but that's what we do. We want to, we want to model what our parents do, including when they swear and uh, when yeah. they don't mean to in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> and like what I've learned with the kids is they make like, they're making conclusions, whether if we're not talking to them about it. So like, right. like if I'm not closing the gap, he's, his immature mind's making a conclusion that's probably not correct, but he holds that as a truth. And if we don't communicate, then especially around money, they develop these money scripts or stories. 
Absolutely. You'd be surprised how much your kids know about your finances already. If you were thinking, you know, I don't need to talk to them too much about stuff. No, I mean, with the internet now, they can mm-hmm. just go into, you know, Zillow, Purple Bricks, whatever. They'll know exactly how much houses <laughs> are in your neighborhood. Yeah. Some provinces and countries around the world, they publish salaries of people of public sector. So if you're on the sunshine list, I guarantee they've seen how much you make. Yeah. So you'd be surprised. And if you leave it to them to fill in the gaps, they will create these scripts that mm. have no basis in reality sometimes. And <laughs> yeah. so their perspectives could be totally different from the truth. And And so having communication with your kids about money is good to not only tell them, you know, what the actual sort of money script is and how things are, but to clear up any misconceptions that they will develop possibly mm-hmm. on their own. Yeah. I got a big question to ask you about like the system of money in Canada, especially what, what you're doing on your mission of, well, your website says redefining financial advice. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a bit about the psychology of money right now, but I'm kind of setting up another question, but can you just describe what you mean when you say, and we, we've already touched on it already, but maybe just concisely of the 90% money you've talked about is 90% psychology and 8% math. Can you just talk like, what do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. So that's a math joke because it doesn't (laughs) add up to hundred percent. And that is a testament to how unimportant the math is because it's basically all about psychology. And, you know, the the mission behind money gaps and the idea of reimagining financial advice really comes down to this. There's an industry of people who are super interested in money and they end up, you know, in the financial services to some extent, providing advice to people. And they mistakenly believe that everyone else is as interested in money as Mm -hmm. they are. Mm -hmm. Most people are not. Mm -hmm. Most people think about an interaction with a financial advisor the same as going to a dentist. It's painful. Let's get it over with. I have to feign excitement with all the graphs and charts and numbers that this person is going to show me. It's going to take hours of extracting information, hours to explain it to me. And when I'm done, I have no idea what it says. And yet we think that this is what exactly everyone wants. And that is not true at all. Mm -hmm. And from talking to a lot of financial advisors and clients, so we hired a innovation lab to try and pick apart this traditional relationship between clients and advisors. And one of the single biggest pain points that was identified is that people do not read financial plans. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who will say, yeah, you know, this huge, big 100 page financial plan shows you how much I know. And really, the client is thinking this is going to be a waste of the next two hours of my life. Please save me from this. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge disconnect there. Can I just add something there that I think is always just we don't touch on is like from the client's perspective, the amount of shame and guilt that we they actually feel for not for feeling guilty or shameful that they actually don't know what this financial plan means. Yeah. The fact that they're not reading it. And then when they show these projections, they're usually so far attainable. You just there's so much guilt. So sorry, I just feel like that financial plan is just nobody reads it. And then they feel guilty for not reading, even though we know it's complex. Right. And so what tends to happen in many cases is that the client and advisor will agree to provide a summary document of what this big financial plan says, because they already know that no one is going to read this, right? The client (laughs) is not going to read it. And I don't have a scientific study on this, but I imagine that the average number of times that a client reads a financial plan is less than one. Right. Because most people don't read it. Some Mm -hmm. people read it it once. Nobody reads it twice. Mm -hmm. And so they create this one or two page executive summary that says, all right, so here's essentially the big takeaway from this big financial plan that I've, you know, spent hours and hours and hours making. 
And the other thing is, you know, these financial plans will project out 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future, and they always have to change. So a financial plan is a living document. Mm -hmm. So there is no, there is no point even investing the time to figure out what the next 50 years are projected to look like when you know that it's all going to change. I mean, take a look at how COVID has upended Mm -hmm. absolutely everything. All financial plans have to be redone after COVID. And so there's not a lot of buy-in into that process. And so we thought, well, wait a second, wouldn't it make more sense to flip the script and do this backwards instead of doing these big comprehensive financial plan first and then coming up with a synopsis afterwards, which almost every single instance you have to do, why not start with the synopsis? And then when the person is ready to really roll up their sleeves, when they're about to approach a major money moment in their life, like about to transition to retirement, or they're thinking about moving or having kids or whatever it is, that's when they get really interested in maybe taking a little bit of a deeper look into the numbers. And so if you just start with the synopsis, and you can actually probably just stay at that level until the person is ready to really roll up their sleeves, because it's really about developing the behaviors that are going to set them up to optimize their potential down the road. So that is, you know, save more, mm-hmm. uh, pay down high interest debt, and, and so on and so forth. So th- these are not really deep decisions, mm-hmm. but they're fundamental decisions that you mm-hmm. have to make. And so if you can spend less time on running through a sea of charts and numbers and focus on the behaviors that are going to set them up well, then that's probably a better use of time. They're going to be much more engaged with that process because you're talking about what should I be doing now as opposed to looking at, well, what's my life going to look like 30 years from now? And again, we already know that we discount the future so heavily that we have no connection with our future selves Mm -hmm. as much as we do our present selves. So it's better to focus on the present. So what we did was we said, all right, uh, in Money Gaps, let's just create a personal financial report card. It's a one-page report. Everyone intuitively already knows what it is. And the core design philosophy in our reports was that you should be able to present this report, not say a single word, and the client should intuitively understand what it says Mm. and how well they're doing compared to people like them. So we just give people an overall grade point average. They understand what that is. And just like a report card, we give them a report on every subject of their financial life, the grade and these teacher's notes that kind of says, well, this is what's important about this category of your financial life, like your life insurance coverage or your disability insurance coverage or your retirement income coverage, your debt servicing and what have you. And so people, instead of looking at the minutia, will say, ah, I'm at a C. And if I look down a subject by subject level, I'm doing, I've got an A on my savings rate, mm-hmm. but a D on my debt servicing. I know what to focus in on. And so you're, you're able to provide holistic, but light advice mm-hmm. And then when they are ready for those deeper conversations, you can do it then. I think this is way more efficient for both people. It's going to create more engaged relationships between planner and client. And and so, yeah, so effectively, we think that the process is backwards. Yeah, and I've seen money gaps and it's very simple, but you guys have managed to make it very effective, which is good. But the thing that I've noticed that I liked when I ran through it is that you can see small changes quicker, if that makes sense. So like you run the analysis and you might get a B or F in one thing, but then you make some changes and then all of a sudden it it tells me I'm doing better, which I think from my perspective helped out because it's an immediate thing where finances, like money is so far, like we talked about a lot here already in the future. So I guess, can you talk about the design element of 
because I know you guys are like with your study, you're trying to quantify this value of advice, but maybe talk about how that design you feel from a psychology perspective helps keep people engaged and also not too intimidated. Yeah, well, when it comes to, you know, the research into the quantification of the value of advice, the crux of that problem is major estates in the sort of ecosystem of financial advice. So I'm talking about the industry itself have focused in on portfolios. So it's a very portfolio centric mm-hmm. world. But we know that financial advice has evolved and it used to be just, you know, securities transactions and helping people with individual stock and bond purchases and sales. May 1st, 1975 is a very important date in history because that's when the SEC deregulated trading commissions. So up until that time, many people may not know, but commissions on trading stocks were fixed and really didn't matter where you went, how many shares you were selling, what company it was, the cost was fixed per share. So there wasn't really a lot of competition. It's kind of ironic. Society held out as the most capital markets society uh, in the world had this this completely managed, you know, system of trading stocks and it became deregulated only in 1975. And so at that time, a lot of people thought, you know, this is going to lead to this growth in discount brokerages, which it did. Commissions were going to drop as a result of this free market competition now in cost of trading stocks. And this would completely kill financial advice. It didn't. What happened was financial advice evolved from securities transactions to portfolio management which is looking holistically at how all these different parts come together and adding value in that context. And then as portfolio management has become commoditized itself, because now you can get these turnkey portfolios, it's a race to the bottom with costs. Mm -hmm. Now the advice model has also evolved in the last 20 years to more holistic wealth management and looking at, you know, insurance portfolios, looking at estate planning, tax planning, all these other aspects of people's financial lives. And so Right now, you'll see the conversation is kind of stuck on costs, which is not unimportant. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know what the value is, like what you're getting or how to judge what you're Mm -hmm. getting, then all you can look at is costs. And that's Mm -hmm. how you differentiate, you know, the different services out there, which is a disservice because, yes, there are a lot of, I always say this, there are a lot of bad financial advice providers out there, but there's a lot of really good ones too. And so if you have a better idea as to what the value can be and how to measure that value in the context of contemporary financial advice, which for, I would say, good financial advisors are doing more than just portfolio management, they're doing all those holistic you know, advice as well, then that changes sort of the calculus for people. And so I think there are a lot of people who say, well, I, I'm happy paying something in return for something. Mm-hmm. And so if they know what they're paying, which they do now, but they don't know what they're getting, it's hard to make that determination. So our, that, that research is really about how do you figure out how to measure the value what a contemporary advice channel provides today. And given that framework, I think it informs people as to whether or not the cost that they're paying makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. So in effect, if you have a full service advisor who is actually providing you with good advice along all of those different dimensions of your wealth, they're also providing you some behavioral coaching, which is a big part of the element as well, the customer service, slick tool people expect today, then that is worth something. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where the research is is headed, trying to figure out how do we measure the value. And I think it will lead to really interesting possible explanations of the different services that are out there right now. So a common channel for people today is, you know, robo advice. Mm-hmm. There's lots of ads and what have you. And if you look at a kind of like robo advice 1.0, it's just asset allocation, really. Mm-hmm. And so if you're half the cost of a really good full service advisor, 
who's doing holistic wealth management, financial planning, all that stuff. But they're providing, once you have a framework, maybe slightly more than double the value of just asset allocation advice. Then you might say, well, that might be worth it. Mm -hmm. But if you have someone who is just trying to compete with a robo advisor by just talking to you about investment solutions, and they are twice the cost, then you want to say, well, is that worth Mm -hmm. the extra cost? And so I think, you know, the outcome of the research is it should not only help consumers make better informed choices, but I think it will help mold the industry to providing more attention to the services where they mm-hmm. can add more value. Mm-hmm. Like we're still not a planning focused industry yet. Mm-hmm. We're getting there, but it's still, if you take a look at all the internal metrics, it's about assets under management, mm-hmm. right? It's about production. And it's interesting. If you want to incentivize planning behavior, we need to have the ability to have metrics to measure mm-hmm. how much financial planning is being done for people. So that's what we're hoping is the outcome of the research. And part of that process of, you know, that designing the research and trying to figure out the value of advice and the different aspects that people can get advice on is what went into Money Gaps, which is a very, it's a very light yet holistic, more efficient financial planning solution that takes into account that so many people simply don't have the asset level to get the high quality Mm -hmm. advice that does exist out there. Mm -hmm. So another aspect of the industry is it's designed where the really good advisors tend to have these high asset thresholds. And so if you don't have half a million, million bucks, you're not going to get the person who might score high on that framework of adding value. And so that kind of shuts out the mass market. So Mm -hmm. the vast majority of people don't even have access to that holistic planning because it's so intensive to create mm-hmm. these, you know, big financial plans and whatnot. So if you have some way to create faster, more efficient plans that are holistic and can deal with, you know, 80% of situations where people don't have 200,000 or more, then it just seems clear to me that there's a huge gap in the market. And that's where money gaps is. We're not trying to compete with the comprehensive financial planning software providers out there. Mm-hmm. Those are capital intensive businesses compared to money. Mm-hmm. Money gaps is simple, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It, it, it's quick. It's easy to understand and it's not complicated. And I think it can actually transform financial advice. You know, Pre, I think what you're doing is so good. And uh, I said redefine, but it's reimagine your vision. And because we see year after year in the research under the old systems or models that we have is that Canadians were becoming more and more in debt and more and more stressed about money year after year, like FP Canada puts out this research. And yes, the like these affluent individuals, they're getting this fantastic advice. But I think when we look at a whole, we have access to more information than ever on the internet and other free resources, but yet we're getting more and more in debt or marginally getting better. Something needs to change. And I haven't seen anything that really tries to pinpoint what you're doing simple, but quantify or or show the value of financial planning. And as you're talking, I was just thinking about your car example. Imagine a financial planner convinced you to get rid of your car, to have a motorbike that is in your basement for a couple of years or whatever you only have right now (laughs) and, and spend $6,000 every couple of years in Europe, like from an AUM or assets under management model, this doesn't matter. But from like a client advice or a client value model, I think that's phenomenal. We're I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but like your simple but effective system of money gaps can then allow them to make sure their money's in order. You see that nice, I like how you see a far snapshot of everything that they have, but 
we don't talk about those things as of being a value financial planner. And I think this enables people to, like you're saying, get that advice, but also allow advisors to then start researching more to your point of 90% psychological researching behavioral finance more so that you can talk to your clients about that and not have to just focus on AUM. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I really liked, I'll tell you a little bit about the design process of money gaps. We did a lot of testing with, with people as we're building like our, our pre-alpha, our alpha or beta and whatnot. Some of the pushback that we got initially before we actually put it out in the wild with real people using it as a service was we use a grading system, right? So you can get Mm -hmm. A or you can get all the way down to an F. And we had a lot of prospective financial advisors who are our clients who said, oh, can we change it so that we don't give people Fs? I'm like, Mm -hmm. I know where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. We've kind of gone to a society where giving someone a zero is now a fireable offense for some teachers. You're not allowed to fail them. Everyone gets a turn to being the citizen of the month and all that stuff. And, uh, And so there's a lot of pushback there, right? They said, you know, it might be harsh. And we stuck to our guns and we said, no, we're going to keep on going with this system. And I'm glad that we did because once we got feedback from our clients' clients, so the end, you know, financial Mm -hmm. consumer dealing with a financial advisor using money gaps, some of them passed the feedback on from their clients. And they said, you know, initially when I saw an F, I thought, well, that's harsh. But it also made me realize that this is something that needs attention. So... When you Mm -hmm. look at all the debt statistics, for example, and you see, yes, the average household debt to income ratio is, you know, whatever it is, 174 or something like uh, 174%, whatever it is. You know, what does that mean to the average person, right? Um, Most people don't don't even know what what goes into the calculation of debt to income. And and so they kind of think about their own situation. Well, I mean, doing well, doing bad. They have to sit down and calculate. Most people just don't do that. But if you tell them, you know, compared to people like you, you've got an F, they're going to say, oh, well, this is something I need to fix. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. this starts a conversation. Well, how do we do that? Right. Well, you pay down your credit card balances, you save a little bit more and whatnot. And as that ratio changes, maybe six months, a year down the road, you go from an F to a D. And so you get that immediate sort of feedback on your current behaviors, which have long term ramifications. Mm-hmm. But when presented in the frame that we normally operate in, which is the present, I think it's much more effective than showing them, here's how this little line changes on this 30-year graph if you make this one change today, right? People, that it's just too abstract. Yeah, no, I, I really like the numbers. And I think it's strong, like getting an F, but what is the cost of not being strong, being perpetually in debt or perpetually feeling like I can't spend money on the things I enjoy? I think it's great. And I think you've done a great job reimagining this industry because like I look at these stats and we kind of talked about how we're getting more and more in debt and money's just the top stressor in Canadians' lives. And then to the point of the 90% psychology money. And then I look at some of the predominant planning accreditations like CFP, for example. I look at the competencies and it's like insurance management, risk management, investment management, and, and very important things. But it's such a heavy focus. And there's an element of behavioral finance in there. The requirement or the level of understanding is like awareness, which is kind of on the lower end for them, which they're doing. Like, I mean, it's a great job. to uh, That program and that certification is fantastic. I just think as we evolve, we talked about evolving. We need tools like what you're doing. So planners, because I'm a planner, to allow us to then focus on these other areas as opposed to just how do I attract more assets? How do I twink this portfolio to get to the race to the bottom, like you said, on my fees versus this software that enables a planner, I'm speaking from a planner's perspective, to do this more effectively with my clients so then I can bring value from a different perspective. So I, I think you're doing a great job in that sense. And I hope that can change the system of financial planning. Yeah. You know, 
As you're explaining that, it kind of brought me back to, you know, when I was a kid watching the Winter Olympics and, you know, Canadians did really well in, you know, the figure skating competitions and, you know, all ice sports because mm-hmm. we're Canadians. I remember watching and they would have those two sets of scores. They have the mm-hmm. technical yeah. and the artistic yeah, uh, yeah. presentation. And it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of focus right now on the technical proficiency of planning, which is great. That's mm-hmm. required. Mm-hmm. But then there's like the artistic side of things, yeah. right? And that is just like with figure skating, a very important part of the overall package. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have to know what you are talking about. That's the technical side of things. But then the delivery and how do you translate that into better outcomes or a better sort of like show in the world of figure mm-hmm. skating is also critically important because, you know, you can know everything you need to know, but if you can't communicate it in a way that resonates with clients, drives behaviors and maximizes their potential outcomes, then it's kind of all for naught. So I agree with you that, you know, that's starting to happen. And I think it will eventually become more sort of formally sort of recognize that, yes, this is a large part of the body of knowledge of being Mm -hmm. a planner. It's not just the technical proficiency, but it's also all the elements that go into better adherence to those plans once they are created, because that's another place where, you know, planning can sometimes be challenging for clients is the adherence. So similar to, you know, a medical context. Someone presents with a condition and you know exactly what the problem is, you know exactly what the solution is, is these pills, you know, twice a day for three weeks. And you know, you know, maybe a medical professional would know you follow that course of treatment and this is going to solve your problem. That depends on them following the treatment. Mm -hmm. So that's adherence. And that's another component as well, which is a lot to do with behavior. And so that's, I, I, I think it's great you bring that up because I know personally that if if I have to adhere to something, I can do it if I want to do it. You know, if I understand the internal desire in myself, I want to do it. Whereas financial planning, there's such a disconnect to your point earlier where you said there's very few people who like to deal with money. So adherence is, we're just not engaging them. And that's what I feel like it's our job to, like a psychologist always says, if I can't get someone unstuck, it's my job, not the client's job. And like, right. it's my issue. Like I, I right. wasn't able to take them forward. It's my, like, that was my tools didn't work. I think as planners, we have to start adapting some of that thought process is that if the adherence isn't there, am I not suitable to deal with this client? Am I not talking properly? Am I not having enough empathy to understand, to meet where them where they're at? I think this is all part of that integrating behavior the behavior side into financial planning is important. <laughs> if someone's listening, Money Gaps right now is offered through financial planners. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a list where like a, a consumer could type in like firms that subscribe to Money Gaps or something uh, like that? No, there, there currently isn't a sort of a list that someone could find easily, but the best thing they could do, and this happens a fair bit, is if they go to moneygaps.com, there's a little chat bot in the bottom right corner of the screen And they can just ask someone, say, hey, can you help me find Mm. an advisor? And then we will reach out to them and say, okay, do you have a preference as to location and whatnot? And then we'll just give them a list of three to five advisors that meet their criteria. And then we leave it for them. So we don't sort of just send over one. We'll just say, well, here's a bunch of people that meet your criteria. And then you have to then go and figure out if you want to work with them. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we might do in the future is create some kind of B2C version that covers an even more elementary look at things, Mm -hmm. especially because I think, you know, when you look at the spectrum of households across a wealth and income dimension, there's a lot of people who 
if they're on the, say, the bottom 80%, which is a big chunk of the mm-hmm. population, mm-hmm. they may not know exactly where to go to get sort of a, a rough assessment that is, you know, more planning focused, more holistic in nature, and they want something. So we might create something that helps them. And then, you know, potentially if they want to opt in to talk to an advisor, use money gaps to take it to a slightly deeper stage, then we might facilitate that going forward because we find that a lot of people who are self-selecting into the channels of advice that they want. That's another thing that we found in, in the research is that people are actually pretty good at selecting into to their channels over the long, but it can be hard initially trying to figure out where to go to get started. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, as you were talking about money gaps, it made me think of David, I think it's printed his last name, Bach, the Automatic Millionaire book, yep. where mm-hmm. he, he gives out a, two different clients, one made high money, came to see him, didn't have anything saved, or the 55-year-old couple, I think, made $60,000 their whole life, and they're millionaires. But financial planning can be that simple if we follow those behaviors. And I, what I like about money gaps, again, is you plug it all in there. And if you just follow those things and sure there needs some adherence to it and like motivation, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. And I feel like the industry has just complicated it to serve that 20%, which is needed, but like you, the 80%. So again, I think it's fantastic that you're, you're on this journey because right now it's how to be so complex, deal with the most wealthy clients in Canada or how to have the lowest ETF in Canada. It's like, what about all Yeah, so we're like the, the complete opposite. We're like, all right, you know, people who have money are being well-serviced and well-taken care of. There's lots of options, but they're, you know, 10% of the population, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. That is such a huge chunk of the pie where we could be doing so much of a better job by just making a few changes and making things less complex. That's what people want. They want simplicity, but they also want words for a lot of people. And we're not saying the process is necessary, you know, what's being delivered is wrong. Mm -hmm. We're just saying that maybe that can wait until they're ready for that part of, you know, their money journey. Mm -hmm. But for so many people, they just want to, am I headed in the right direction? Am I doing the right things right now to compare to people like me so that I am set up so that I have all these choices later on and all these options to stop working early or buy Mm -hmm. another property, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, thank you for taking a look at Money Gaps. We appreciate yeah. it. Well, you're making financial planning accessible for so many people. So that's great. I do want to switch gears and talk, ask you about a comment that you had. And I, I don't know what this means, so you can elaborate. But there are a pack of stray dogs who have taken control of most of our major cities. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> so for your listeners' benefit, I should explain like your, yeah. your process. Like it's, you have a very regimented process. So as for your podcasting guests, so you, you send out a nice Google Forms document and you ask a bunch of questions. And I think that the question that I answered that to was, was there anything that you wanted to mention? Yeah. Or, like yeah. or like a public service announcement or something like that. Yeah. And it just, <laughs> and it just immediately made me think of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Talladega Nights. I have not. Ballad of Ricky Bobby. It's a Will Ferrell movie. In any case, there's a scene in the movie where uh, it's a comedy where they're doing these public service announcements. And at the end of the movie, they show some of the outtakes because you can see it (laughs) feels like they ad libbed a lot of these public service announcements. And of course, they were outlandish. So one of the public service announcements was we 
here to tell you that about a very important story that isn't high on people's radars, and that is that packs of stray dogs control most of our major cities. <laughs> so it was just a total joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually believe that there are packs of stray oh, okay. dogs controlling most of our major cities. Okay. I was thinking like, wow, I wonder where this is going to go. But I even Googled yeah. that statement. I'm like, do I not know something about this statement? <laughs> well, I'm glad. I thought, Toronto's in trouble, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see the time here. So I want to be mindful of your time. I, I just got a couple closing questions for you. Sure. And I appreciate all the insight you've been giving us. So based on kind of the conversations that we've had today, is there a, I know re- recommending a book or resource is always tough because it depends where people are at. Other than yeah. this book right here, which people should get, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is Preet's book, Stop Overthinking Your Money. And uh, it is a good one. So we'll definitely put a link to Preet's book and, and maybe your book is recommended one specific to our conversation. Is there a book that just kind of comes to top of mind based on what we were talking about? Oh boy, that's a great question. Obviously my own book, Stop Overthinking Your Money covers, you know, the basics. I, I'll tell you what the whole idea behind that book is. And the idea is that there's so much information out there that if you wanted to, you could get you know, an A plus in your finances, but it would Mm -hmm. take a lot of time. You have to invest a lot of time reading and researching books, podcasts, whatnot to get to that level. And my argument was that, you know, following the Pareto principle, it's really like 20% of your behaviors determine 80% of your results financially. And so the book, Stop Overthinking Your Money is, here is the prescription for an easy A, right? It's kind of like an easy A minus. So it's not perfect, Mm -hmm. But if you don't want to spend a lot of time, which most people don't, mm-hmm. but if you want to learn the basics, then here are the five simple rules. If you follow those five simple rules, which are not complicated, it's going to drive 80% of your results. And then once you have sort of mastered the fundamentals, then you can go on and spend a lot of time on discussing, you know, risk parity portfolios versus indexing mm-hmm. versus whatever, and really get into the minutia if you want to. Mm-hmm. And so- that's the gist of the book. Here's an easy A. And then that's kind of like the very basics. And if you want to springboard from that to get your A plus in those different areas of finance, you can do that because there's thousands of books and podcasts and, and mm-hmm. whatever out there. But beyond that, you know what? more about... I think we should keep it at your book because you're big on, unless you want to give one, but you're always... I've heard you talk about limiting decisions. And yeah. who would have thought that the book you wrote would represent the conversation that I had with you? I guess I should have thought that through from the start. So I'm going to right. recommend everyone this one. And if you have one that's burning on top of it, but yeah, because I, I, I share the same sentiment is financial planning should be very easy. Sure. We can miss out on that fine tuning that maybe marginally increases our happiness in life. But I think your explanation of this is great. So unless you've got a burning one, but I think this is a good one. Well, I'll, I'll give you one which I think might actually be a good podcast guest to have as well. Okay. And that is Melissa Leong's book, Happy Go Money. Mm, Right. Because that book I found was really refreshing and I think is going to be like perfect for your podcast because it really is talking about the psychology about how we think about money, what makes Mm -hmm. us happy. And it doesn't get into the minutia of the stuff that, you know, like a personal finance blogger would find sexy. But mm-hmm. again, personal finance bloggers represent 0.0000001% of the population, right? right? So if you want a book that's going to appeal to the masses, you got to think about the psychology of money and making decisions in people's relationships with money, not about the minutia. Mm-hmm. The people who do find that interesting have no shortage of resources to turn to. 
but uh, yeah, I guess that's that's one yeah. of the okay. other ones that I would recommend. And uh, tell Melissa I said hello. I she was on your podcast, right? She was, yeah, yeah. Okay, I will. I'll reach out to her because that would be great. My last question: Say you're 90 years old, looking back on your life, and you had to write a letter to your descendants on how you, based on your life, feel they should live with money. What would you say to them? What advice would you give to them about the relationship with money? Great question. What I've found is that there is a disconnect between what people think their priorities are and what actions they take in life. And this is a this is something that you've probably come across before, but there's a saying where if you show me how you spend your money today, I will tell you what your priorities actually mm-hmm. are. Because how we spend our money directly reflects what our priorities are. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that you have different priorities, you think that there are things that you want to achieve, but haven't, but you're not doing anything in furtherance of those goals, then there's this big disconnect that you need to solve for. So if, you know, just using an example, your, your goal is to save up for a down payment on a home. What are you doing right now? Like, is there any money in your budget right now that is going towards saving up for that down payment? And if not, why not? And if it is something that you could do, then you need to start doing it. Otherwise, that's not actually a priority that you Mm -hmm. have. It's just some goal that you think might be something that you should uh, aim for, but it's not actually a deep priority for you. And so I think, you know, that meaningfulness about what we do and how that furthers what we want to achieve is critical, not only in life in general, but especially for how we think about our money. And this is where I see a lot of, again, disconnect between what people think are their priorities versus how they actually spend money today. And so if I was to write a letter to, you know, my descendants, mm-hmm. you know, grandkids or whatever, I would have them sort of figure out, you know, what are the things that make you happy now? And what are the things that you want to be able to do later on? And, you know, when you look at how you spend your money, think about, you know, the things that make you happy, how much does it cost? And what I'll find when I think about that is some of the really simple things in life drive a lot of happiness and don't cost a lot of money, like a really good cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, one of the highlights of my day is that Mm -hmm. first cup of coffee. Uh I, I like to have a nice cup of coffee. And so, you know, I'm, I'll say this right now, I'm a coffee snob. I roast my own <laughs> coffee beans. Oh, wow. And not only because it's cheaper, because it is significantly cheaper in the long run to roast your own coffee beans, but it just tastes amazing. So it's cheaper and it tastes amazing. I'm very connected to my coffee mm-hmm. and it's also saving me money. I like naps. I like, you know, the ability to, in the middle of the day, take a nap, uh, you know, at two o'clock or whatever. Back when I used to ride my motorcycles, going out and just enjoying fresh air, you know, these simple things drove so much of my pleasure. And I kept thinking for the longest time when I was younger, it's all about attaining things like mm-hmm. big fancy cars and, and all that stuff. And, you know, those are nice. But when I think about what actually is driving the happiness in my day-to-day life today, it's those simple little pressures, which don't actually cost a lot of money. But I will say this one last thing. I benefited from being ill, you know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago to the point where I thought legitimately that I was was going to die. So again, when, when we talk about hitting like rock bottom, something that drives some kind of behavioral change, that changed my perspective on what mm. was truly important to me. And, it, and that was the fork in the road 
moment for me as to reevaluating what are the things that I want out of life? Do I want to work, you know, nine to five for someone else, you know, Monday to Friday with a couple of weeks vacation per year and just sort of keep on doing that for decades? Or do I want something else? And I would never have taken that shift in perspective if that didn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a tough one. Mm -hmm. You need that perspective shifter in your mm -hmm. life, I think, for many people. That's not something I can just sort of give people. I can't sort of like force a bad thing to happen to them to force them to reevaluate things. But I guess whatever you can do to think about what truly makes you mm -hmm. happy is a good step. When I think of this reimagining financial advice, I'm glad we recorded this because that last statement to me, like that, like, when I think about reimagining, that speaks to my soul, exactly what you just said. And I think when we talk about stories earlier, we might not have these moments in our lives that put us knocking on death's door. But I feel like the more stories we share, we start thinking about our own selves and our own stories. So thank you so much for sharing that. I really, I think that was very impactful. And like I said, I'm glad we recorded that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thanks, man. So where can people find you? And your podcast, your website. Sure. Where can you direct people? Yeah, I mean, the main hub would be my personal website, PreetBanerjee.com. If you prefer video, you can go to YouTube. And if you just search Preet Banerjee, you'll find me as well fairly quickly. My podcast is called Mostly Money. I, I don't publish it uh, on a regular basis, nor do I publish my videos on a regular basis. All publishing content and scheduling has gone out the window in the last couple of years, especially with, you know, schoolwork and various other projects, launching money gaps and whatnot. But I've been in the last year of my research for the last couple of years, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I am actually in the final stretch. So okay. I think I will be back to publishing more regular content back in 2021. But wow, 2020 has been an absolute whirlwind. I can't believe we're already into the end of the year. It's wild. And I do really enjoy your podcast. So I urge people to go over there and your YouTube channel. I, I enjoy that one as well. I do find myself refreshing my podcast. Thing, like, mostly money. Mostly yeah. money. <laughs> I do have a few episodes in the can. So I'll publish, okay. <laughs> I'll publish a couple in the next couple of weeks for sure. Yeah. All right, Preet. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, my pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have a great day. All right. Thanks, man. Ah, what a great conversation with Preet. As I mentioned, Preet has been someone who I've looked up for many years, and it was a delight to have him on the podcast. Here are my three main takeaways talking to Preet Banerjee today. Number one is viewing expenses as a commitment. I like how Preet frames this, because normally we look at our expenses as, oh yeah, I have this much money left over at the end of the month, I can make that payment. Preet's example was a car payment for seven years. We look at our expenses, and if we can afford that payment, we say, yeah, I'll go ahead. But I like how Preet reframes this to saying that it's a commitment. So to quote Preet around this topic, he speaks about debt, for example, as borrowing money is like negotiating a pay cut with your future self. I love that. And again, it goes to a commitment. So am I willing and wanting to enter a seven-year commitment of this vehicle payment, which I know that it's going to reduce the amount of time I have for the next seven years because I have to work to earn that money to pay for the vehicle. So again, it's a, this is about a reframe, and I really like how Preet talks about it in terms of a commitment. So I can look at my, my budget and see how many financial commitments do I have in the next year, two years, five, seven years, and how much time is that going to reduce, my, reduce for me? 
on and on the flip side is if I could reduce some of these commitments, how much time do I get back? And that's what's really important because that time, that's that finite thing that we all have and we all want more of. So maybe looking at our financial commitments is a good way to get some of that time that we all want back. Number two is communication and money are critical. Preet talked about his research and how they saw that families that reported a higher level of financial communication had a higher level of positive well-being. And that's something that we want. We want to have high levels of positive well-being. And it makes sense. The more we talk about money, the more we feel that it's okay to talk about money and it's not taboo. And especially for uh, couples or individuals who have children out there, is if we're not talking to our kids about money, they're going to assume that money's a bad thing that we can't talk about. But also, they're going to try to make sense and piece together what you feel as a parent around money. And the issue with this is they have immature minds and they can't make sense of money, but they'll try to figure something out. And then they often hold these as truths as you grow older as children. So communication around money is critical. And the last one is around aligning our spending with our priorities. This one really resonated with me. Well, they all did, but especially this one because I'm a big believer in aligning our expenses with our values or as what Preet said, our priorities. And I'm going to also lump in our conversation around why financial plans can be useless. And when I say financial plans, I'm talking about these big documents, 40 pages that nobody reads, lots of graphs that nobody reads. And the reason why I'm lumping these in is often we feel like we need this big financial plan to have a successful, successful financial life. But if we don't use them, if they don't include our priorities or values, then they are, in an essence, useless. So I really liked how Preet talked about is if someone shows me their expenses and shows me their priorities, I'm able to see if there is in fact a disconnect. And often there is. So my third takeaway is aligning our expenses with our priorities. Well, thanks so much for listening this week. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. If you have a few minutes, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a rating and a review as it really helps with getting great guests like Preet on the show. Thanks so much and have a great day.